Welcome to the Elevate Your People podcast, a place to be refreshed and energized by work again. I'm your host, Danielle Dietz. Let's talk about how we can create an environment for your people and results to thrive. In this podcast, Brad Fetterman and I talk about the part of culture that's often underemphasized, accountability. Companies almost always have values and a cultural identity, yet often fall short of that. We're only human. Brad talks through how companies can have collective accountability on their employee experience and also how to right the ship and impacted revenues when leadership in the company is drifted. He shares great insight on why it's important to the business and your customers to stay in tune to your culture. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining me on this week's podcast episode with Brad Fetterman. We're going to be talking about cultivating culture and how we can help hold leaders and the organization accountable for living up to this. So just for some quick background on Brad, he's an author, a speaker, a leadership coach. He's been in the industry for decades. Some of his books include employee engagement, a roadmap to creating profits and really optimizing performance and increasing loyalty, jumpstart 50 ways to engage your team, and most recently, Cultivating Culture, 101 Ways to Foster Engagement in 15 Minutes or Less. He's a founder of Aspire Talent Advisory, most recently in December 2022, but then he also founded and is the CEO of Performance Point. He's been doing that for over 20 years. So we're really excited to have you, Brad, and get to dig into just the concept of culture and the tough part of walking the talk and kind of holding people accountable for that. So thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here and have the conversation. Awesome. So I'm a big proponent that who you are is far beyond just your titles at work. So share a little bit more about what makes Brad, Brad, and some of your passions. Wow. So, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father of two, I'm a son, and I'm a brother. I'm actually the youngest child of five. Oh, wow. So I came from a decent-sized family. I'm actually a twin. I have a twin sister. And you'll laugh because I, one of the jokes I always make is, is people undoubtedly still ask, so are you identical or fraternal? And I have to say, well, I want you to think about that question just for a moment. Just think about that question think for a moment. Think about this genetic. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's honestly, it's funny when that question comes up. So, but all those things play a role in who I am. But I also am a little bit of a political junkie. I do follow politics. I'm not partisan. I am, I'm, but I, I do want to stay attuned to what's going on. And then I, I would tell you, though, that my, my favorite things are to read, uh, travel, a big traveler. And I'm a bit of a foodie. Oh, okay. What? Let's see. What's your favorite, most discovered restaurant? Oh, wow. So I would tell you that when I was in Barcelona, there was a place called Los Caracoles where I got paella and I absolutely loved it. I won't be able to tell you the name of this restaurant, but it's probably my favorite restaurant ever. I went to Italy and I was in the, in the small city of Assisi. And I wanted to find a restaurant that wasn't touristy. And so I, I spoke to someone who was local that I trusted. And they asked whether I had a car. I said, yes. They said, well, you might get lost looking for this place because it's basically the message they gave me was it was, it was nondescript. You're going to go out of the city on this road. And about a mile, mile and a half down the road, you'll see a farmhouse. And you'll probably pass right by it if you don't take notice because there's no signage, nothing. But go there. It's a great restaurant. So we ate, my wife and I ate 
this incredible dinner. It was so inexpensive at the time. And we kept eating even though we were full. You know, when you're, you're not feeling good because you're so full, but you can't stop because the food was so good. You know, that's the kind of thing. And then I would tell you that there was a beautiful setting in Santorini, Greece. I don't know if you've ever been, but Santorini is beautiful. Have you? And there's this little area where on one side of the island where the big boats can't come in. It's only fishing boats. And we sat at this restaurant and they literally had a chalkboard that they would erase and write new things on as fishermen came in and gave them their latest catch. And you'd order something and they would literally pull it out of the water because it's sitting there waiting live. They bring it in the back, make it for you and bring it out fresh. That was absolutely incredible. And I'll give you one more. There's a shout out to a place called Nona Dores. I think it's the name of it in New York and great pasta, incredible pasta at that restaurant. And Marafuku is great ramen in New York. Both, both places I'll, I'll recommend. Oh my gosh. Okay. Everyone, hopefully you're there taking notes. So in case anyone visits any of these destinations, I was thinking it'd be in Memphis, but no, we got the globe. Well, I'll you some, I can give you some in Memphis too. So I'll tell you what, if anybody out there is listening and you want Memphis recommendations, cause you're coming to Memphis, contact me on social media, wherever I will be happy to give you recommendations. I actually gave someone recently, I'll ask them what they wanted to, to eat, what style of food, you know, what type of food. And I gave them five recommendations because they're coming into Memphis and they're real excited. So yeah. that's awesome. Okay. Well, sounds like we'll have to have a spinoff on restaurant recommendations, you know, travel, foodie, all that stuff with your passions. But as far as really helping organizations elevate their people. So how did you get started in the human resources space and what continues to inspire you to stay in it and progress in it? Wow. Okay. So I was inspired by two factors. One was a, an experience I had as a child. I was in seventh grade. I ran for student government and I won the election. And as a prize, which was not necessarily a prize in a, in a middle, student, middle school student's eyes, was I was being sent to leadership camp, right? I, I won a free week of leadership camp. Now, mind you, when you are 12, 13 years old, going to leadership camp doesn't sound very enticing, right? So I was not happy, but I was doing it because it was my my duty, right? So I ended up having an incredible time. And the person who ran that camp, who was very involved with uh, with the school system, basically took an interest in me and got me involved with other things. He got me on the board of the organization that ran that camp. So I was a student member of the board. He got me involved in board of education. I was the student member for the board of education. I went back to the camp and not only to go back to camp, it was a peer kind of coaching kind of camp. So as I entered high school, they said, hey, look, why don't you staff, apply to staff? So I applied to staff and I staffed the junior high. Then I eventually staffed the senior high. Then I staffed their advanced program. And what I didn't realize at the time was I, they would train you. And I was getting a, and I was getting training that was a bachelor's, master's style training on how do you write objectives? How do you do instructional design for classes? And I was learning about leadership and problem solving, all these things. And I loved it. And so by the time I went to college, I said, how do I do this for a living, you know, and still make money, right? And so that's what prompted me to go into it. Probably a lot of other easy ways, easier ways to make more money than human resources, but... I loved it. I really did. I loved it. Of people, I was intrigued by the psychology of it, and I wanted to go down the road. The other factor that drove my belief system and direction in life was my father. So my dad grew up as poor as poor could be in New York. He was living in a one-bedroom, basically, apartment with he, his brother, and his sister, and his mother and dad. 
he literally his live his his bedroom and his brother's bedroom because they shared it was the living room and during the day it was the living room and at night it was the bedroom right and you know for fun they would do things like throw pebbles towards the building see who got closest without touching the building that kind of thing. they didn't have toys they didn't have stuff to play with right and so one day he wrote he was a young young child he wrote the mayor of New York LaGuardia and said you need to know it's not fair for some kids to have certain experiences and other kids not to. And I'm not expecting you to change our plight, basically. I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing, but our plight, you know, kids grow up poor, kids grow up rich. I understand that. But certain experiences like sleepaway camp, everyone should have. And we should mix because people who have, who meet people like me, will understand and have empathy. And people like me can see other parts of the world through their eyes and know what's possible, right? And so... LaGuardia was so touched by his letter, he went to visit them him at his apartment, knocked on the door, and basically said, I was touched, you're going to camp. Sent my father to sleepaway camp. At the end of the sleepaway camp, he came to my to the camp and said, how did you like it? My dad said it was the best time of his life. And Mayor LaGuardia turned to the camp director and said, Send him, give, him here, uh, give him another week. And my father said no, and, and LaGuardia looked at him and said, what do you mean no? He said, you said it was the best time of your life. And my father said, I told you. If you have another week to give, give it to another child who, who needs it, right? And so, you know, the and then he actually convinced the mayor to take a dilapidated, dilapidated building down and build a playground in his neighborhood, first playground in his neighborhood ever. So, you're, you know, just a lot of respect about, you know, this young child creating changes that were amazing. But his whole point was he wanted people to have experiences that opened their eyes and allowed them to see what was possible. And so that became my mission. You know, the mission of the company is inspiring others to discover and live their possible. He comes from that, comes from my father, who never told me that story. He would never talk about it. My uncle and aunt told me what happened uh, and about the story. That's very cool. I mean, and incredible. It sounds like also, interestingly enough, you and your dad were both influential when it comes to leadership at a childhood age, you know, like preteen or younger, which is really incredible how that can be instilled early and so powerful how that's anchored you in saying, how can I enhance the experiences of others, whether childhood level or then obviously at a corporate level. So really, really adds a ton of depth to why you do what you do and what continues to to push you. So well it has real it has real meaning for me. It is a personal mission and I care about it. Yeah. And that's really what, when that is at the core, that drives people the most, you know, it helps when times are tough projects, people, I mean, people are very complex. I'm sure as everyone's aware that that can keep, can keep pushing you through. So your focus really is helping clients develop the best talent and reputation. And that provides them with tools so they can help become an organization of choice. So not just, hey, the best within their industry, but really uh, from an employee standpoint to be one that individuals are pursuing to be a part of. So two-part question, why is it relevant for a company to be an employer of choice? Like how does that even influence their business? Why should they even care about that? And then what are some of examples maybe that you've seen of a client or clients that are really, really good testaments of ones that have become this? So I, I use a quote that says, your brand promise does not determine your customer experience, your culture does. Mm. And so it doesn't matter what you write on the marketing material. People have to deliver that promise. And if they are not engaged, and if you're not living up to a culture that supports your customers, you'll fail, right? And people think culture is about 
what do we want to be? How do we want to feel? No, culture is about who, why do you exist? What is your purpose? And what do your customers need and want from you? What's your promise to them? What, are you, what, are, what expectation are you creating with them? And then you create a culture of values and behaviors that support that brand promise and that reason for existence. You connect your culture to your customer and the customer equation. Now, when you do that, you then have to build a company that lives up to it. And when you do that, great things happen. And when you do it, don't do it, bad things happen. Now, I'll give you an example, a couple of examples. We worked with a software company that was out west. And when I first did their engagement survey, because they wanted us to do an engagement survey, it was probably one of the only survey results where I had it redact some of the com- many of the comments. Most of the comments had executive names and curse words by them. It was really, really bad. It looked like a CIA document when I got done with it. It was, it was kind of comical. The numbers were horrible. And the company was losing money, right? I'm actually very glad they were investing in this because they were losing money. A lot of companies would say, we can't afford that, but they did it anyway. And I had to come back to them and explain why they were having problems. Well, they're having problems because their employees were so disengaged. In fact, there were employees that were sabotaging the success of that company because they were so angry at leadership. And the reason they were angry at leadership, this is a great example, was they had these beautiful values in the law, one of which was respect employees. And it wasn't uncommon, based on the feedback I was receiving, that certain people in leadership positions, including senior leadership positions, would berate employees, curse at employees, talk down employees, dress them down, be sarcastic and rude, just mean behavior when there were problems, right? So the first challenge I had I had to go through was sharing the message. The second challenge I had to was getting the leadership team to be willing to acknowledge it was the truth, right? Which was hard because they were defensive. But when we got that done, you know, we started to make some changes. One of the changes we made and the, the biggest change we made was we put a three strikes route rule in place. The first time you broke the code of respecting employees, because look, those values weren't put in there in place for when times were easy and good. They were put in place for when times were challenging. You can hold people accountable without being an ass, excuse the expression, right? And so first time you did it, you, you, you dressed an employee down that way and you showed a lack of respect, you were given a training plan. Second time you did it, you were given a coach. And the third time you did it, you were shown the door. It took one executive to do it. They did it within three months and they got, they got fired. And at that moment, everybody on the senior team knew the world changed and everybody in the company knew the world changed. And guess what? With, with that and a couple other things we did that were not that big, weren't that big, they had an $11 million shift to the positive on their bottom line profit. I mean, that's the power of this kind of work right? That's amazing stuff. That is. Wow. I mean, that you just transitioned beautifully because getting into this accountability piece, to your point, no one like, sets out to have a bad culture. It's when times get tough and people are operating under pressure that I think the values get a little blurry or forgotten. So coming in, senior leadership is hiring you. They are your clients. And this is a very, very good example because it was so extreme, but how do you help the senior leaders remain accountable? So even when you said, Hey, those, those three strikes, training plan, coach, or out the door, like who was marking that? How do you make sure they are holding themselves accountable versus continuing to point fingers? Well, they, they had to 
agreed as a group to do it. The senior leader, the, the, the CEO of the company, the president of the company, had to be on board and take it seriously. And then we had to have HR involved as well. And so it was a combination of those things, right? And, and ultimately, HR and the senior leader had final say, you know, in, in terms of that, that stuff. But, you know, employee complained, someone witnessed it, you investigate it, if it happened, you know, that you did it, right? Okay. Here's, here's, the, here's the criteria for what respect looks like. This is what you did. They don't match, right? So we have to, you, did, you, you, you even admitted you did it, right? I mean, we have to deal with it, right? You have to be communicating to employees that, hey, this is the three strike plan that leadership has agreed to. And then if they feel that they're the recipient of that, then a, a simple process no retaliation with HR, and then then the leader is held accountable for that. Yeah, you know, that's an extreme example. I mean, in most cases, we don't have to do that kind of a thing. But, you know, in that case, you had to, right? It was so it over the top, mm-hmm. right? In other cases, it's really about, you know, it's about addressing certain things. It might be work environment issues. It could be that compensation is out of whack. It could be that uh, they're not receiving the training they need. It could be, you know, there's a variety of things that happen. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you the one of the things that I'm, I'm on a rampage about right now trying to change is I'm trying to get companies to stop employees, employers, and HR people to stop using the phrase, people don't quit companies, they quit managers. And here's why I'm, I say that. I actually vehemently get frustrated and disagree with that statement. People quit for a variety of reasons, not just the manager. That research was done in the late 70s, 1980s. So the first thing is, is it even still relevant? Well, if you look at the research today, there are people that quit more often because of teammates than they they do because they're managers. If it's a bad economy, it holds senior leadership more accountable than their manager. And there are a host of reasons that people quit beyond their manager. Manager is important, but it's just one reason. So A, I think the research is outdated. Secondly, that research was never published publicly. It was done by a management training company that wanted to sell more management training. And if you look at the items that they used in the research, they were all centered around the manager. Training the manager. <laughs> well, guess what? The manager was the problem, right? So it was biased research unpublished biased research that's out of date. And then more importantly, I've got I've got questions I ask people all the time. Who hired that said manager? Who promoted that said manager? Who developed that said manager? Who retained, rewarded, and recognized that said manager? If you have managers that are problems, in fact, we just did a study, a, a, a research piece, and we found that 75% of managers have problems. They're either an absentee manager an autocratic manager or unpredictable and scares, they scare their employees because they're unpredictable manager. Only 20 some percent were consultative and participatory. When you have that many managers doing a bad job, it tells you about the culture of the companies that are out there, that they value profits over people. They don't care about the wake that people leave in their path. They're not creating human-centric cultures. They're not giving managers the tools they need to succeed. And that has to change if we really want to be an employer of choice, not one that works the system to get an award because there's a lot of words you can pay for or you can manipulate that are out there. I mean, it's amazing to me the amount of money that marketing departments spend on those things, but they're not real. If you really want to have a substantive change, not a PR change, 
then we're going to have to make the right investments and do the right thing and create human-centric cultures that allow people to have amazing experiences at work. And they should because they spend more time at work than they do anywhere else except for their bed. Your work becomes pretty much a huge part of your life. And it should have meaning, purpose, and it should have value. Yes. I mean, it's where we spend majority of our waking hours, usually more than with family to your point besides, besides when you're asleep. So I think that is a great point of a lot of the weight does just automatically go to the manager when you're forgetting, well, how did that person become a manager? They were either hired on, they were promoted. And then what is the overall culture that's holding them accountable or setting them up for success? So you aren't allowing a manager to continue to operate that way if they are problematic. Yeah. Well, if you promote individual contributors that don't show a sign for leadership, but, but, but you, you promote them because they're such good performers, then expect problems when you make them a manager. They're not ready, you know? And, and so you have to systemically look at things if you want to change circumstances. And the focus on each individual manager is myopic and stops you from looking at the systemic issues. So what that means is you get to blame somebody, but you don't have to fix the problem. Yes, completely. And pointing fingers pretty much never leads to improved improved results. So I was going to say, I was at a conference a few years back and it was fascinating. IBM did this in-depth analysis of their managers to try to uncover, hey, where were certain problematic areas and what were some of those features? So not just blaming it on the specific manager, but realizing to your point, hey, had we been promoting managers based on performance and maybe missing some of these people leadership elements and really trying to rewrite the organization from a leadership standpoint so they could stop the high churn in certain areas. Whether it was a mid-level manager, director, senior director, they realized, hey, this was prevalent all throughout. So when you have clients where this is a scenario, what are some KPIs, like key performance indicators or accountability measures that you can recommend to help the company see more clearly if they're having more of a holistic management approach of profits over that human centric? Sure. Well, and the first thing you have to do is you have to look at how you define jobs because, you know, you have people that say things like, you know, engineer one, engineer two, engineer three, right? And essentially the difference is whether you're an individual contributor or a manager, but the job descriptions don't even really reflect the leadership capabilities that they're looking for. So, I mean, I understand job descriptions are hard to make. They're hard to keep up to date. You know, I'm, I'm okay if you have a profiling system that is not as intense, but it has to reflect. If you want somebody to take a job, they have to reflect the job has to reflect what you want them to do, right? I think that's the first thing. Second thing I think is that you need to make sure that you have a, you create a pipeline of potential leaders, okay? And there are ways to do that and that you have assessed them and you've given them development plans and 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 vehicles to learn and experience leadership skills and demonstrate that they're ready. And they only get put into a pool of potential leaders at your company when they've demonstrated that they're ready and then they can interview for leadership positions. So it all starts before you actually have an opening, right? You have to build that pipeline. The third thing I think is that you, you know, if you have a performance management system, that performance management system for leaders should reflect leadership competencies and capabilities, right? And if you're doing engagement work, you should be looking collectively at the entire company. Do we have a leadership issue, right? And you should be looking at different leaders and saying, look, we've got some people who are in trouble. How do we help them, right? Can we help them? 
How do we deal with this? I have people that do engagement surveys. One of the things that we do is we actually look at, we use an analysis to determine who should have follow-up conversations with their teams, who should have a partner with like maybe somebody from HR who helps them, and who should not run a meeting at all and be a part of that meeting at all based on the results because they'll do more damage than they will help, right? And so if you're not getting that kind of support from a vehicle outside your company and to help you think through how you follow up on, on engagement surveys, that, that's another example that you can do. But engagement surveys have KPIs in them if you're using them correctly, right? And and so that's another example. I think there are so many ways in which you can actually measure those things. But the way you interview and hire and promote, the way you do performance management, your engagement surveys, all kinds of things you can use. Um, and what I would say is I would need to look at each individual organization and say, what do you have available to you? What have you done? And you build the KPIs based on that organization. I, I hate the generic KPIs because it's the same reason why I don't like people benchmarking too much. Uh, now, we provide benchmarks when we do surveys and things like that. But what I always tell people is, you know, here's a great example. Uh, people go, can you give me the benchmarking for my industry, you know, for engagement survey? Well, yeah, we can do that. But you know, you're you're basically fast food service, right? Your food service. So depending on who's in my database, right? Which could be McDonald's. So you're say you're Starbucks, and I'm and I've I've got I've got lots of companies in my database, but one of the big ones is is McDonald's, which it skews the benchmarks, right? So do you want to compare yourself to McDonald's? Are you in the same business? And they'll say no, right? Or retail. So I've got say I have Walmart in my in my benchmarks, and you're Nordstrom. Very is, different. Is Walmart benchmark yourself against All right. So this concept of you now, you know, we all we all have lots of companies, but depending who they are and where they sit in that industry, they can skew the numbers one way or the other. The bigger issue is you should create benchmarks for yourself based on your own performance, right? So if you have a core engagement score of sixty-seven this year, well, then next year let's set a benchmark at a core engagement score of. 70, right? Or 71. Even if you looked at the benchmarks, you said, we want to look at world-class and you have somebody has a core engagement score of 90, you know, we have benchmarks, uh, world-class benchmarks of 90% or 92% and you're at 67. That doesn't do you any good. Yeah. What does, what does, be realistic. what will do putting a plan in place that helps you improve, right? And so we spend all this time and energy focusing on things that actually don't necessarily help us. And so we should figure out what's happening in your world and build the KPIs around what you can handle, what you can do, and where you are right now. And those KPIs can change over time based on your sophistication, et cetera. I have this conversation all the time. How should we cut up the, the data? How far down should we go? And so I, I end up having conversations with them and saying, okay, how are you structured? What support do you have? Right. And you end up, you know, they, they wanted to cut it down all the way to the imagery of manager's feedback. But they don't have the capability to follow up on that, to work with the managers, record anything. So you do all this work and you're not going to use it. Why are you doing that? Let's cut it down to a point where you can use it. And we'll eventually get down to the manager level when you have the ability to pull that off, right? Let's make it about you. Yes, that's what I'm really big on is the simplicity behind it. So for listeners, this is really helpful. If you're a part of an organization and you know that there's an opportunity, you want to find tangible ways that you can guide leadership to make changes, don't try to go super in the weeds. 
figure out, hey, what is inherent to our organization? What are some what are some things that I know leadership cares about combined with things that you know are good really people influence indicators or people leadership indicators? And then sim- simplify. Don't try to tackle too many. And then you're up, I like that three, say three things. Well, there are three, there are three that I wanted to share too. Oh, that perfect. I just, okay. I just thought about. So the first one, and these are pretty broad, but you can measure whether people want to give you their all, whether they want to give you discussion effort, whether they'll go above and beyond, right? That's, that's one measurement that we use a lot of times. Another measurement we use is do people have an intent to want to stay? Now, if I say I want to stay over the next year, chances are I'm going to do that, right? If I say I don't want to, chances are I'm going to look for a place to go, right? So your intent to stay actually is a good measure of whether or not you're going to have a lot more turnover or, or not, right? That's another one. And then the third one is, will your people be brand ambassadors? Will they recommend you as a great place to work to people they respect and value, right? So, you know, the, the truth is those three things, do I, am I willing to give you my all because I get something back out of it? Do I want to stick around and stay here? And will I recommend this place as a great place to work to people who I value and respect? Wow. And once again, talking about simplicity, I mean, those speak volumes because if you can't say yes to those things, that just shows you're, you're kind of in a job just to collect a paycheck, you know, and it's a matter of time before another opportunity comes along that you're going to jump in on. That's something that's so important for not only, you know, HR professionals, but people in leadership to be really cognizant of. Because like you shared back in the software example, that's going to show in your results with your customers, with your revenue, if people aren't willing to, to go that extra mile. And if they're actively spending efforts to kind of look elsewhere and aren't attracting other top talent and, you know, endorsing in their network, that's just, that's working against you. You know, we've worked with hospitality companies, one hospitality company, we saw a 17% increase in problem resolution scores, which drove customer loyalty way up. We worked with a manufacturing firm that saw massive results in terms of their safety record, their attendance record, their engagement record, you know, into everything, you name it. I mean, it just, the reality is that people matter. In the end, you can't launch a product, you can't serve customers, you can't manufacture anything without people. Now, I know companies are working towards get, towards doing it without people. I know there are companies out there that are doing that. Right now, though, you need people. And if you need people to get things done, their state of mind when they walk into work and when they're there matters. Oh, yes. And even if people are developing technology that hypothetically can, you know, replace or supplement humans, there's people building that technology, you know, like no matter what, it's going back to your employing humans, you know, and I agree. And why, I agree. why would they build it for you? Great. If they could go build it elsewhere and be happier, you know, so it, it always goes back to you. And I just love the focus because sometimes there is a bit of a stigma of, well, work is work, you know, you don't have to love it you know, do things on your personal time that it's like, well, no, we, we all have to work to an extent. And that's so short-sighted if you're only thinking about it just the cut from your employee enjoyment. Like, no, that's going to permeate into your customer experience and your revenue too. Between COVID and cultural changes, those that, that that's such an old kind of view. You know, the reality is it's very clear. People want purpose and meaning in the work. They want a strong, healthy, positive culture. 
They want growth. They want to be faster, better, and stronger, more marketable today than they were yesterday. And if they're not, they'll go somewhere else. And they want flexibility to be able to have some kind of a life, right? If you're not thinking about those four things as an employer, then you're losing the battle right now because that's the headset of the people that are working for you. That's it. You can't ignore it. Yes. And what I've seen a little bit of shift, especially that last part about people want to have a life, you know, like whether it's family or, you know, personal interests and passions, like you want to have the capacity to still pursue those things and not have to sacrifice it to experience career success. And in the past, it was a little bit more mutually exclusive of like, Hey, you either pursue this career success in this part of your life, which then will lead to kind of enjoyment on the other part. But now it's very much so, so integrated, which actually gets me to when you think about, I mean, the whole premise of your focus on uh, work is really helping companies discover and live their possible. So when you think about yours, and I love the accountability too, that we have as individuals of work can create an environment, but ultimately that's on us to ensure we've got those healthy boundaries and we're still living up to our own identity and exploring that and prioritizing life outside of work. So on a personal level, what are some things that you do to live out your, your possible, really elevate your life? Well, you know, the first thing I do is I get back to the community. I am very involved with certain organizations and they, they change over time. But, you know, I, I, there are three right now that I, I focused on. One is Grace House in Memphis. And, and what it is, is it's a, an organization that helps women who are addicted to drugs or alcohol and can't afford rehab, right? A safe space to go through that long-term help, not short-term help. They won't get kicked out because they don't have insurance. It's kind of like the St. Jude of addiction help, right? Here in Memphis. And so I'm on the board of that organization and, and, and help them. The second group that I work with is a group called Leadership Memphis. It's about helping create community leaders in Memphis to make Memphis a stronger, better community for all. And then the last group is a professional group. It's the Society for Human Resource Management. I'm the president-elect for our SHRM group here. And I give back there as well. So I try diligently to give my time. I also give money to certain places as well. That's the first thing. The second thing is I have to elevate myself by not just doing work with clients, but we have to practice what we preach here. So, you know, you held up the book, Cultivating Culture, that I wrote recently. We actually meet every week. And well, thank you very much. There it is. We meet every week at this office and we actually use activities from the book. I'll sometimes pull activities that are not in the book that I that I, I know myself because I've been doing this for years. And I will jump in and, and run one. But we actually have a, a schedule and and it's, it's shared across the, the team and each person takes a week and they run it. So it doesn't even rely on me at all. But we're constantly exploring who we are, our culture, making us better and improving ourselves. And that's part of, you know, if we're going to ask clients to do it, we need to do it ourselves. So we practice what we preach. And, you know, and I take real pride in it. I mean, the other month I had one of my employees come to me and they said, I need to talk to you. Okay. And, and I said, sure. What about? And they they said, you need to know that I have a therapist and I have some anxiety problems, nothing to do with work, but I have anxiety problems and I am going to go on medication. And the next two weeks, I'm going to be getting adjusting to my medication. And so I may not be myself. Now, I'm not mentioning the person's name because of HIPAA laws and all that kind of stuff, but, but I'll mention the scenario. And when they told me, the very first thing I said to them was, thank you. And they said, for what? I said, for being willing to share that with me because I can't support you unless I know. 
And the fact that you're comfortable enough to share that with me makes me feel incredibly grateful. And they said, thank you. And I said, why? And they said, because you created an environment where I felt I could. And that's what it's about. You know, when it's not about the measurements, the KPIs, it's not about a PR award. Those are the moments that make it worth it. You know, when you really know your people and they know you and they're connecting with you at that level and they can do a better job because they can be a better person because they can feel supported, not just outside your four walls, but within your four walls. That's powerful. I always say a healthy culture has three things. A healthy culture helps you learn about yourself in a productive way. It's a mirror that helps you grow. A healthy culture is a culture that allows you to learn about other people in a way that you develop empathy for people who are uniquely different than yourself. And then a healthy culture has one last factor, which is it allows you to be vulnerable and heal in front of those that you work with. You can do that professionally. And that's important because when I walk through a doorway, if I'm going through a divorce, I'm still going through the divorce when I walk in that office building. If I've been diagnosed with cancer and I walk through that doorway, I'm still going through that diagnosis and that treatment. It doesn't disappear. You know, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Severance, but there's a new show out. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it initially create this, this chip that goes in your head. And when you go to work, you no longer remember your personal life when you walk through the door. And when you leave work, you no longer remember work. You only remember your personal life as a tool to help people separate personal and work. And there are a lot of problems and complications that come from it. It's actually a pretty interesting kind of a story and statement about our society, right? And the way we think about things. The point is it doesn't work and it didn't, it doesn't work in the show and it doesn't work in real life. You can't just separate those two out. We are a whole person and we should be able to bring our whole self to work. And by the way, if you can't bring your whole self to your family, then you made some you have to make some decisions about that because you need to be a whole self in every aspect of your life. You can't hide who you are and you can't hide the things you're going through. It it is damaging and it's disrespectful to who you are. Yes. There's ways where it's like you can have lean into more parts of yourself in the workplace or in personal, but that all of those elements need to be there. You shouldn't be having to splice and you're cut off, sever those those parts transitioning in. I think this this is such a great point of, uh, you're an example of all the other elements that come into play that help you as Brad live out your possible. And for leaders to just recognize that for every person that you work with that either is on your team, is a peer or even senior leadership. I think a lot of times we forget that they're just humans too. They have lives, they have challenges. <laughs> they're, they're, they're all humans, you know? Well, you know, when you're an executive and you have a company car, you have your kids in in private school, you have help at your home, all kinds of things. You eat in a a private dining room. You may be on a separated floor in your company. You know, you know, I went to one company and it was funny meeting with the president of the company. You you went on the floor, there was nobody there. And and there was the assistant to the president of the company. And and she said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I I have a meeting with the president of the company. And she said, hang on one moment. And she pressed a button underneath the desk and the wall, which looked like a real wall, opens up and I walk behind her desk through the wall and it closes behind me. And there he was separated from everyone in his company behind a closed wall, right? 
you know, I go to, I went to another company recently that's in Memphis and, and the executives are all in a place which has a special key card that they go into and the employees can't just get in there. Right. And so we've walled ourselves off and separated ourselves from each other. Right. And when you do that, you have a lack of empathy, you have a lack of connection and you forget that people are people because you judge them by the standards of your own life. And by the way, the standards of your own life look nothing like the lives of your employees. And you need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. That is a great point. And I think some of those setups, as cool as that sounds, though, kind of superhero-esque, really just don't connect when it comes to employees, like just the accessibility, the visibility point. So I think for senior leaders to kind of reflect and hold themselves accountable for that too, because if you are hiding yourself off that really, and even if you're kind of mid-level management too, how accessible are you as your office door open? Are you present with the team? I remember I worked with the manager who she would call it being in the pit. Like she would be kind of in essentially the cubicles with everyone instead of in her office because she wanted to be a part of conversation. She wanted to be able to quickly turn around and answer a question or hear what was going on within the team. And I remember I thought that just demonstrated such humility. Not that that's what everyone has to do, but I think that's a great point of people remembering, hey, how you are elevating yourself and your people and recognizing how other people do that for themselves is really important when you're approaching them in a conversation, remembering that bigger context and how some of these other cues, whether it's sharing something of your personal life or just acknowledging that, seeing that in them really helps your team feel like it's a safe space. They can connect with you. You are human too. You are not just their boss. I totally agree. hundred percent agree. Yes. Awesome. Well, Brad, thank you so much for your time. And it has been really incredible to get to dive in. As I mentioned to readers, um, his most recent book is Cultivating Culture, 101 Ways to Foster Engagement in 15 Minutes or Less. Tons of great tangible activities that you can do. So recommend people to check that out. And Brad, it was such a pleasure. If people want to connect with you, it's LinkedIn the best way if they want to follow up. Yeah, I'm, I'm on all of them on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but LinkedIn is probably the best. And we have a company page on Performance Point LLC. And we also, and I also have my personal page. Happy, follow me, connect with me, message me. I love to hear from people. I believe that social networking is a networking and a social tool. So I will respond. I don't believe in it, you know, just be on there. I, I it should be active, right? So I want to connect with people, I want to interact with people please reach out. Absolutely. Love that. There we go. Getting to the accessibility point, living it out. Well, thank you so much, Brad. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for spending your time with me and desiring to elevate your people. I hope this conversation energized you to take ownership in your work experience. Let's raise the expectation and create conditions for our people to thrive. Because when we enjoy our work, the business results and our lives show it. If you have any guests you'd love to hear from or dive into a certain topic, please message me on LinkedIn. Another great way to influence the world of work is to share this podcast with others. Until next time, continue to elevate your life and elevate your people.